Hi folks, I want to welcome you to our adult Sunday school time here at the Kerwinsville Christian Church. And we're so glad that you could uh, be with us this morning. We're continuing right along in our survey of the Old Testament. And we're in the section of the books that I'm entitling The Return to the Land, which covers Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And so far as we've gone through this portion of books, we've looked as We've looked at Ezra and Nehemiah, so today we're going to enter into the last book of this section, which is the book of Esther. And so we're going to focus on Esther chapter 1 through Esther chapter 2. And I've entitled today's lesson, which is lesson 8, A New Queen. Okay, so let me just kind of set the historical context for you today. Where are we with this book? Because when you read this book, it's very obvious that Esther is not in Israel, not in Judah at Jerusalem. Esther is in Susha, the capital of the Medo-Persian Empire. We were hearing a king's name, Ashuharis, who we've seen that name several times before in the other two books, in Ezra and in Nehemiah. So where does this book fit with those two books? Well, I would say that this book is somewhere in the timeline from the end of Zerubbabel's governorship when he came and reset the foundation and rebuilt the temple and the time of Artaxerxes I, who is the king of the Medo-Persian Empire who sent back Nehemiah and Ezra. So this is actually before the whole period of Ezra and Nehemiah. So you're going to need to understand that, and we'll cover that a little bit as we go along in the material today. So again, we're not going to read through these two chapters simply because of the time factor, but I do want you to grasp what's going on here. So let's take a look at it together. So when you come to chapter 1, which is 1, verse 1 through verse 22, we're going to see the difficulty with Queen Vashti. Now, who is Queen Vashti? Queen Vashti is the wife or the, the, one of the wives who is designated queen of Artaxerxes I. Now, you said, I think my, the New King James says Ashuerus. Who is Artaxerxes I? Well, that's who the actual Medo-Persian Empire king is. The text in the New King James says Ashuerus. If you have an NIV or something else, it'll say Xerxes, but it's Xerxes I. So let's take a look at this together. So Xerxes I was ruler of the 120 provinces of the empire, which stretched from Ethiopia to India. So if you think about how big the Medo-Persian Empire is, it's going all the way from Ethiopia, which, by the way, when we say Ethiopia, the text is actually talking about Egypt, Sudan, and Ethiopia. So from there, all the way across, over to where India is. And so that's how big the Medo-Persian Empire is. Now, being big, it has its own difficulties and so forth. Now, just a little bit about Xerxes I so that you understand. Xerxes I was a weak ruler. Now, when I say weak, I mean, obviously, he's the king. He has the authority to kill or whatever with his, whenever he speaks. But he relied very heavily upon his counselors and eunuchs 
as far as making decisions. He couldn't make decisions without going and doing what his counselors told them to do. Now, we're going to see that happening here today in this text. And because of that, he was a pretty weak ruler. One of the things that was interesting, there was a rebellion that happened under Artaxerxes, I mean, under Xerxes I in Egypt. Now, he violently put that down, but that kind of emboldened him to want to go after the Greeks. And so he launched a major campaign against the Greeks and against Athens. And after a lot of setbacks, he was defeated. Now, the problem with this is that this would set in motion the decline of the empire that would ultimately result in later on, another century later on, when Alexander the Great would come and defeat the Medo-Persian Empire. And we now have the empire of Alexander the Great. We've talked about that when we looked at the book of Daniel. So, in the third year of his reign, he hosted a celebration for all of the Medo-Persian officials. So, he's been reigning three years, and he decides to host a big party. Not just for the officials who are in charge right there in Sushan, he has all of his officials from all over the empire, all the governors and stuff, he has them come back for a party. How long does party last? Well, it was 180 days of celebration. So this is a party that lasted 180 days. So during this 180-day celebration, the king showed the riches of the kingdom and his splendor to his officials. Okay? So that's what's going on here. Wow, 180 days. Wow, when they're done. Wow, what a cleanup. Well, when the celebration was completed, he hosted an additional seven days of celebration for the people. For who? The common people. For the people of Sushan. He hosted another seven days. So we're talking about 187 days of celebration. 187 days of partying. That's what's going on here. Now, Queen Vashti also hosted a feast for the women in the royal palace. So, so I want you to understand, their culture was completely different than our culture. There was a definite separation between men and women as far as the whole issue of celebrating things. It was a very much a patriarchal society. So when they did this 187 days of partying, it was 187 days of partying among the men. The women, though, had their own celebrations, and of course, Queen Vashti was the one who hosted that feast. But she's hosting this feast during that additional seven days. Now, on the seventh and final day of the feast, the king was drunk and wanted to show the queen to the people. So when you read the text, it's very evident that he was merry with wine, and he wanted the, basically to parade the queen with her royal crown on. He, want, he wanted to show off his wife is what he's doing here. Except he's, he's drunk. He's wanting to show off his wife to all these guys like this is my woman. And you say, well, that, that's pretty bad. Yeah, it is. He's drunk, okay? Now, here's what goes on. Queen Vashti refused to come when the king's command came which infuriated the king. 
She was having none of it. She wasn't doing it. She knows exactly what's going on. She wasn't going to go parade around with a bunch of drunken men because he wants to show off his woman. That's very evident what's going on here. So she refused to come and do this. Which Now remember, they're in a patriarchal society. That's unheard of that she would do that. And so the king is infuriated. Now, let me just stop for a moment. This is our first evidence of the character of Xerxes I. Remember, I told you that historically he was noted as being weak, a weak leader. So the fact that she would feel bold enough to say no in a culture where she didn't really even have that kind of say tells you that there is some weakness to this king. But it makes him mad. He's infuriated. Well, here's what goes on. When we progress further along into chapter 1, this presents a dilemma now. What does the king do? And again, remember I told you that he relied, it was his, his, it's an historical fact, that Xerxes I relied heavily upon his, his courtiers, his, his, uh, his counselors, and his eunuchs to know what to do. And we see that very evidently here. The king asked advice from his wisest counselors, which are known as the seven princes of, the Persia, of Persia and Media. So he goes to these, these wise counselors, the seven princes of Persia and Media. What do I do? What do I do? In fact, that's what's going on here. The king wanted to know what should be lawfully done to Vashti since she refused to come. He wants to know what can he legally do to his wife because she refused the king's command. Now, rather than just making the decision himself, he's got to seek the advice of others around him. Now, here's the problem. What she did was not just a little incident now. She had, really, with what she did, it had implications for the entire empire, especially for the king. So here's what happens. One counselor stated that Vashti did wrong to all of the leaders and the people in the empire. So he recognizes that this isn't just her saying, I'm having none of it, I'm not showing up, telling him no. What she did was a great offense that really was a wrong done to all of the leaders, which by the way were men, and all of the people in the empire. How so? Well, the queen's behavior will become known and influence women to despise their husbands. Now you say, are you kidding me, George? Seriously? So you're saying that because she did this, this is going to influence women to kind of do the same thing with their husbands? That's what they're saying. That's what they're thinking. Why is that so important? Well, remember, it's a patriarchal culture where women were to basically subvert themselves, subject themselves to whatever the husband said from the top down. And so that's what you're seeing here. So they advised that a royal decree be made forbidding Vashti from coming to the king. So the first thing they said is, we need to make a royal decree where she no longer comes into your presence. 
So basically, it's kind of like, well, it's not a divorce, but it's basically saying she can't ever have any contact with you again, kid. The decree would also strip Vashti of her position as queen and give it to another. So basically, so she, just, she can't have contact with the king anymore, but also with that, she will no longer be queen and they will, the king will then be free to give that position to someone else. That's the advice that's being given. So when the decree is announced in the empire, now this is not just some local thing happening in Sushan. We're talking about they're going to announce this decree from all the way from Ethiopia all the way to all the provinces from Ethiopia all the way to India. The counselor says, all the wives will honor their husbands. You're, are you, you're saying, man, are you serious? Yes, that was the thinking of the time. That was the culture. So the advice pleased the king, and he issued it according to the laws of the Medes and Persians. Now, we have seen this concept of the Medes and Persians before. Why? Because remember... When we studied the book of Daniel, the counselors came and made a decree to the, to the king and said, oh, Cyrus, oh, king, you know what? Uh, no one should worship anyone but you. And if somebody does that, they'll be, they'll be thrown in a den of the lion. And, and, and the king says, yeah, that sounds real good. Right? Well, you need to make that decree and put it into the law of the Medes and Persians. When you put it into the law of Medes and Persians, it can't be changed ever. That is to be done strictly. There's no adjusting it. So with this issue of her no longer being able to come into the king's presence, her being stripped of being queen, and the queenship been being given to somebody else who's more worthy, that was going to be set in serious stone in the law of Medes and Persians. There was no way to change that. Basically, with Vashti's decision, she basically sealed the fact that she would never see the king again, ever. And that's what's happening here. And the king was okay with that. And they did it. Now, here's the problem. We come to chapter 2. Chapter 2, we're looking at verses 1 through, uh, one through I believe it's 23. Yep, 1 through 23. When the king's anger subsided, he remembered Vashti and the outcome of the dilemma. That's what the text will tell you. So what happened? Well, basically, the, the king got over his anger. He cooled down. And when he cooled down, that's when reality hit him. That's when he remembered Vashti. He must have really liked her, obviously, so he was going to show her off to all these other guys. And, but then now he's like, oh, my goodness, what has happened? Now he can't have contact with her anymore. And not just that, she's no longer going to be his queen. She's probably somewhere in a harem somewhere forever, not ever going to see him. She'll die there. And he understands what the dilemma is. And so it's not a good thing. He's not in a good way. And guess what? Everybody else realizes that, wow, you know, that may have been good advice at the time. But we got a problem now. The king's not happy. 
Well, so the king's servants proposed that young virgins be brought into the king's harem. All right, now let me just stop for a moment. So remember when I told you in our introductory material to the historical books that sometimes what you're going to see in the text is not a good example of what should be done. It's not even a condoning of what happened. So what we're going to see happening here is a record. Remember, it's a narrative. It is a record of what happened. So here we are. We have a pagan culture of the Medo-Persian Empire who worships whatever their gods are. They're not followers of Yahweh, nor do they recognize Yahweh. So here we have these folks, and so they're deciding, okay, we've got we've to make the king happy. How do we do this? Well, let's get some virgins and bring them into his harem. Now, remember, the kings at this time had harems. What do you mean by that, George? Well, they had lots of wives. Some were proper wives, and some, most of them, were concubines. That's lesser wives. And so this eunuch, or whoever the servant is, is basically saying, well, let's go and bring more of these young virgins. Let them be searched for. Let's find the most beautiful women in all of the empire and bring them into the king's harem. So they were to be given into the care of the eunuch who served as the custodian of the harem. Now, when you read this chapter, you're going to see that this whole harem thing is, is more than just some guy having a bunch of wives. It's actually in a very elaborate system. It is, we're actually going to see that there are two houses. There's the house where they come in as virgins, then they go to the king, and then from there they go into a second house where they will remain there. We're going to talk about that in a minute. So this is with another custodian. So they were to be given into the care of this chief eunuch who would serve as the custodian of the harem. So under his care, the young women would be given beauty preparations. So they would be brought in from all over the empire, wherever they would be, and then they would be brought to this harem, and they would be basically cared for and be given beauty preparations to be presentable to the king. The young woman who pleased the king would become queen, and of course the king agreed to this plan. Of course he would. Basically, this plan is saying to him, we're going to bring you a young woman every night. He's going to know them sexually. And so he's got this endless supply of women coming in, and whichever one pleases you that you're really happy with, you can make that one your queen. That's the plan. That's pretty bad, folks, but that's what they're doing here. You know, a lot of times I've seen it. You know, I, I'm, I'm a big fan sometimes of the presentation of Esther in a lot of different variations as far as um, the uh, whole issue of children's material and so forth. This is not a beauty contest. I've seen that portrayed. That this is a beauty contest and Esther won the beauty contest. This is not it at all. This is more base. This is more sinister. This is more depraved but it's reflective of where these folks are at in this culture. So 
the text moves on and we're going to be introduced to Esther. So in the capital city of Sushan was a Jew named Mordecai, a Benjamite. So we're going to be introduced to a Jew by the name of Mordecai. Mordecai is from the tribe of Benjamin. The text will also tell us who his father and grandfather are. Mordecai was the great-grandson of a man named Kish who was taken captive to Babylon. Now, when you read this text, if you're not paying attention, you might make some false assumptions here because when you come and you say, oh, Kish, I remember Kish. Wasn't Kish the father of Saul, King Saul? Yes, but this is not the same Kish. Kish was probably a very prominent name in the tribe of Benjamin, and so to have some guy named Kish was probably pretty, pretty prevalent and pretty common, and so we have a guy named Kish, but this Kish was taken in one of the three captivities from Judah and Benjamin when Nebuchadnezzar came and defeated, and then he was taken into captivity to Babylon. Well, Mordecai is the great-grandson of this guy, okay? The great-grandson. So, let's go on. So, he had a cousin whose name was Hadassah, that's her Hebrew name, who is also called Esther. So, he has a, a, a young cousin whose name is Hadassah. Now, when Esther's parents died, all right, so when Esther's parents died, which would be, so probably Esther's father was Mordecai's uncle. So when her parents die, he raised her as his own daughter. Now, why would that be? Because, well, here she is. She's orphaned. Who would she go to? The nearest family member who would take care of her. And that, in this instance, it's Mordecai. Now, Esther was very beautiful, and she was taken to the king's palace to his harem. So because she lived in Sushan, she's probably one of the first ones who's taken. So somebody sees her, they decide, okay, that's one, we'll take her. And, and that whole concept of taking, there's no choice here, folks. There's no choice. She, she can't decide, oh, that's really a nice proposition from the king. I kind of like to hang out here with my uncle. I'm not going. There's no option here. She's taken. That's the point here. She's taken to the king's palace to his harem. She enters in. That's it. Now, the text goes on and tells you that Esther has favor with people. So Esther pleased the chief eunuch and gained his favor. So how she carried herself, whatever it is about her, she gains the favor of the chief eunuch. So here's what he does because he's favoring her. She was given more beauty aids than her ration as well as maidservants to serve her. This is radical, isn't it? So here she is. He's obviously taken with her. He's favoring her. So what does he do? She gets a portion of rations for her beauty aids. He actually gives her more. And then to make sure that she's being taken care of, he gives her maidservants, four maidservants to care for her needs. She is also moved to the best place in the harem given probably the best room, the best accommodations in this house that they're in. So that's how much favor she has. 
Now, one of the things the text is going to tell you, it's going to tell you a couple of times, and at this point, nobody knows that Esther is a Jew. Why is that? Well, Esther had been warned by Mordecai not to reveal her family name or her people. So basically, she's not to tell anybody there that she's from Mordecai's family or she's not to tell anybody there that she's of the Jewish people. She's not to say anything about her ethnicity or what people group she's from. So he's been warned. And it text very, tells you as you go along, she abides by that. Okay? She very much abides by that. Now, it also says because he treated her like a daughter, Mordecai is obviously very concerned for her. So the text will go on and tell you that Mordecai paced every day in front of the harem's quarters for news of Esther. Now, he couldn't go in there. I'll be honest with you. No one was allowed to go into the king's harem. The uh, eunuchs, now you understand what a eunuch is. There, there are men who have been castrated for service to the king. They are the ones who care for the harem, but no other man is allowed in the harem. Even if that's your family member in there. So Mordecai, all he could do is wait outside and possibly ask somebody coming out, how's she doing? He's waiting to hear news of her. That's what the text implication is. Now, here's the interesting thing. So how long does this go on? The text tells you. After 12 months of preparation, each young woman took a turn to go to the king. So they spent 12 months preparing in whatever way to be ready to go to the king. And then one by one, when they had a turn, they would go to the king in the evening. In the evening. In the evening, she would go to the king with whatever she desired to take with her. So whatever she wanted to take with her, because she's, she's going to be leaving that house, that's the last time she's going to be in that house where the harem is, where the virgins are. She is to go to the king and she's to take with her whatever she desires. In the morning, she would then be sent to a second house of the harem. So in the morning, she would then go and be, go to a second house, and she would stay there. Wherever she was in the first house, that's long gone. She would now go to the second house. She would not go to the king again unless he called for her by name. Isn't that radical here? So she goes and has one night with the king. And if he's pleased with her, she might go see him again, but that's only if he calls for her by name. Next night, it's another woman for him, another young virgin for him. This is the reality of what's going on here. So when it was Esther's turn, she took only what the chief eunuch advised so when she's getting ready to go she wants to make sure she's doing the right thing so she asked the chief eunuch who of course has who sees her favorably what should I take with me he gives her advice and that's what she takes with her the king 
the text will tell you, loved Esther more than all the other women. So he made her queen. Isn't that amazing? So she goes as one night with the king. He loves her more than anything. He makes her queen. Not just that, the king then hosted a great feast. Remember, this is the guy that throws 180-day feasts, okay? He hosted a great feast, the Feast of Esther, it was called, and proclaimed a holiday, a national holiday, because he's got this new queen. Now, the text then will go on and tell you that at the time of a second gathering of the virgins for the harem, Mordecai sat within the king's gate. Now, a couple of things I want to point out with this statement I just made to you. What do you mean a second gathering? Well, probably up to this point, uh, whatever point this was that Mordecai began to sit in the king's gate, She's not been made queen yet. So the whole purpose of looking for a queen goes on. So they bring one group in, which is the group that Esther was a part of. Because they're still looking, remember it's a year of preparation, they bring in another group of virgins. Well, by that time of bringing in another group of virgins, Mordecai sat within the king's gate. Now what does that mean? Well, all of the decisions that would have been made would have been made in the king's gate gate when you talk about sitting in the gate that's where decisions are made that's where agreements are agreed to that basically mordecai becomes an elder who sits in the king's gate it's a position somewhat small position he's not like the king but he's got some sort of decision making aspect in this kingdom at this point now the text will also go on and tell you that at this point, Esther has still not revealed her family and people as Mordecai commanded. So she still hasn't told anybody she's a Jew. She still hasn't told anybody she's from the family of Mordecai. Why? Because Mordecai told her not to do it. See, this, this is the nature of the culture. You do what your family tells you to do, especially those who are the head of your family. Now, the text then goes on and tells us in verses 21 through 23 that there's a plot against Xerxes I. So as Mordecai was sitting in the king's gate, he became aware of a plot against the king. So as he's in the king's gate, somehow he becomes aware that there's this plot to murder the king. Two of the king's eunuchs became furious with the king and sought to kill him. So two of the eunuchs, remember he's relying on these eunuchs as well as other counselors for his advice. Well, two of them are mad at him and so they're plotting to kill him. Mordecai hears this. Mordecai then relayed the plot to Esther who then told the king in Mordecai's name. Now, what does that mean, tell him in Mordecai's name? Well, when she goes to the king, of course, she's not revealing her identity. She's saying that there's this guy named Mordecai who's revealed to us this plot for your life, king. So guess what happens? After an inquiry confirmed the plot, 
the eunuchs were hanged and it was written in the records. Now, let me just stop for you a moment because when you read this, you're going to read, especially later when you talk, read about gallows being uh, created, you and I, when we think of hanging, we think of gallows like they did in England as well as here in the U.S. where it's on a platform, there's a rope, and you hang somebody by a rope. That's usually our thoughts with regards to the issue of hanging. That is not what they're talking about here in the Medo-Persian Empire. In the Medo-Persian Empire, when they talked about hanging you, basically what they're talking about is impaling you, impaling your body on a pole and letting you hang on the pole impaled. Pretty brutal. And that's what happened to these guys when it was found out that they were plotting to kill the king. And it was recorded in the book of records. Now, here's the ironic thing as we close our lesson. History tells us that Xerxes I and his son Darius, he had a son named Darius. So obviously they're calling each other similar names within their family. But Xerxes I and his son, probably the oldest son, Darius, were killed in a murder plot by the commander of the royal bodyguard and eunuchs. And when that plot was discovered by Artaxerxes I, or Artaxerxes, his son Artaxerxes, he had the conspirators killed, executed, and then he became the king of the Medo-Persian Empire, which is the king who sent Ezra and Nehemiah to Jerusalem. So just want to let you know, so it's ironic, this whole issue of plots is very common in that day, and it's from people within the royal court. And in this instance where it was discovered by Mordecai, it was two different eunuchs. Okay, so that brings us to the end of chapter 2. Next week, we're going to get into chapter 3, and we're going to progress along, and we're going to be introduced now to the main antagonist in the book of Esther, in our narrative here, and that is a guy by the name of Haman. Haman, and we'll talk about him next week.